and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today, we're talking to Felicia Yap, author of Yesterday, about the power of memory, planning versus going with the flow, and how where you are affects what you write. near Cambridge two years before the murder. Let me tell you a couple of horrible secrets. I'll start by showing you a photograph. This is me a long time ago. I had a flat chest and protruding ears. If you look closely, you can see that I once had hope in my eyes and fire in my soul. Today, both the hope and the fire are gone wiped out by years of institutionalization. Here's a second photograph. Oh, I see you're flinching. That's understandable. It is, after all, a photograph of you. Your own mugshot taken recently. You don't look too bad here. Blonde hair cascading down your shoulders. Impressive tits. Guess what? I'm going to transform myself so I'll look exactly like you. I'm going to bleach my hair and get boobs like yours. Is that a frown I see on your forehead? You don't get it, do you? You're wondering why would I want to look like you? Let me explain. I remember everything. Really, I do. I'm the only person in this world who remembers her past. All of it. Mostly in vivid detail. I'm not kidding, and it makes me pretty damn special. You don't believe me, do you? That's understandable too. Like the five billion monos around us, you only remember what happened yesterday. You wake up each morning with facts in your head, carefully curated information about yourself and other people. You stagger from your bed to the eye diary on your gleaming kitchen counter, to that electronic device of yours, your meagre lifeline to the past desperate to learn the few pitiful details you've wrote down the night before, eager to add them to your memories of what happened yesterday and to the other cold, sterile facts you've learned about yourself. Pretty rubbish, isn't it? And you're even used to this, aren't you? Because you've been doing it since the age of 18, after your hapless little brain switched itself off. No wonder you're envious of the duos whose short-term memories are slightly better than yours. But you're all the same, equally pathetic. Let me add a simple truth, since you're getting to know the real me. When you remember everything, you recall what other people have done to you, even if they don't. Down to the smallest, most gruesome detail which causes you to desire vengeance if they've hurt you badly. Like really, really badly. Like, say, if they've caused you to end up in a mental asylum for 17 years. It makes you yearn during the darkest hours of the night when the moon's smile has faded and the hours have fallen silent to set metal straight. When you remember everything, you will also get away with everything. Like revenge, for instance. 
Fucking convenient, isn't it? This is precisely why I, Sophia Elisa Ailing, will get away with it. Vengeance would be nice, especially in view of what you've done to me. All the terrible little things you've been guilty of over the years. I recall each and every one of them. It's the sum total of remembered grievances that makes hatred potent. Oh yes, the act of revenge will be easy, because no one will remember what I'm going to do to you, except for me. Hello, lovely to lovely to have you here. Um, so first off, congratulations uh, on the huge success of yesterday. It's going so well. We've seen you absolutely everywhere. Thank you. Um, so for those of people that haven't read it yet, haven't had a chance, could you tell us a little bit about what it's about? Well, yesterday is a story of a murder that takes place in a world where people only remember yesterday. So how do you solve a murder when everyone has limited memory, including that of the detective investigating a case? That's such a cool idea. Love that. <laughs> so to go into a little bit more detail, um, the body of a dead woman is found in a river camp in Cambridge, and suspicion falls on the man she had been sleeping with, Mark, okay. and his wife, Claire. But how do you catch a killer when all who are involved can't remember the past? Yeah. At least, you know, not more than 48 hours. It is mm. such a fascinating idea, isn't it? Mm. It's such a compelling, compelling idea. How did you come up with it? Oh, um, the idea came to me on the move. So I was on my way to a dance studio in Cambridge. That's where I used to live for 12 years. Um, and the question, how do you solve a murder when you only remember yesterday, just hit me on the way to the studio. And I was so intrigued by the question, I just couldn't let it go. So I got to the studio and my partner and I, my fiancé and I, began practicing our tango. <laughs> and then um, my mind just kept returning to the question um, between our twists and turns. Um, so you could say that twists and turns were built into the fabric of this book right from the start. Um, and I worked out the initial contours of the story right there on the dance floor um, that night. And I actually started writing the next day. And 15 months later, I had a thriller. It's <laughs> such a great story. So take up tango dancing. Find a fiancé and take up tango dancing. Indeed, and that's how you'll get And then you'll have a best-selling novel. Excellent. <laughs> um, so and you touched upon it a little bit just then. So your characters are either monos who remember the day before or they're duos who remember two days previously. Okay, got that right. Um, it means that everybody is the ultimate unreliable narrator and um, which and it creates such a complex narrative did you sit and plan it all meticulously i mean you just said you just launched into writing it did you sit and plan meticulously where everyone was going to be and what they knew at any given time or did you just kind of let yourself go well the short answer to that is i let myself go um there were moments where i did have a plan and that's uh, contingent on where i was writing so in a place like Germany, I would find myself incredibly organized, um, you know, at the start of each writing day, and I would actually have a plan. Um, whereas if I'm writing in Italy, I would just really go with the flow um, from the moment I open my laptop each morning. So it really is a function of where I'm writing. Um, but in terms of actually getting the book off the ground, um, I decided to start um, from the perspective of Claire, um, who's the wife um, of the man, um, who had 
you know, been sleeping around and whose mistress was found in the river. I thought that'd be interesting to start with her voice. Um, and then it just grew organically, the story. So I thought maybe it's interesting to tell it from Mark's perspective. So that's why the next chapter went into Mark's voice. And then from that point, I it struck me, why not write from the dead woman's perspective through the medium of her diary? So once I got onto three voices, it just made natural sense to develop the fourth one, which was that of the detective investigating the case. Um, and actually, um, my writing tutor um, did say that it, you know, um, you should try to keep it to no more than three voices. Um, and I was quite adamant to myself, at least, that maybe I should try writing the fourth one and actually make it work, just to prove that it can be done, <laughs> at least to myself. <laughs> uh, and I'm really happy I did. I persevered with the fourth voice. I really struggled with that of the detective because he's um, in his 40s. Um, I do not normally think like a male police detective in his 40s <laughs> in the first person. So I really struggled with him at first. But because I worked so hard at him, he paradoxically became the easiest one to write. And mm -hmm. I'm really, you know, happy I actually stuck with his voice. And they are, really they are incredibly clear as well. Each each distinct voice is so different. It's it's a real, it's, you know, kudos to you for, for making that distinction. Oh, it's you. not easy. You can see kind of, like when you're describing it how happy you are about it so like like it it seems like you know you really enjoyed the process of coming up with the idea like obviously coming up with all these dancing and then coming up with all these different characters like you know grinning ear to ear like what did you find the process enjoyable yes absolutely yeah, i got to the end of the book and actually there was a sense of bereavement that i had to you know come, bring the story to an end and let my characters go yeah um so in some ways, I'm very happy to be bringing back my detective for the prequel I'm currently writing. Prequel? Yes. <laughs> I love a prequel. Yeah, and we're coming on to that, so Great. don't give too much away yet. <laughs> okay, that's exciting. So, um, so the book covers a huge variety of topics. So you've got mental health, identity, adultery, as you said, and as well as our kind of reliance on technology. Um, so were these things that you consciously wanted to comment on, like, or were they things that you kind of, you know, like you that you came to as you were writing, you know, they, they just seemed to be the things that were the topics that needed to be covered. Um, I think the story grew organically and logically. Yeah. So I tried my best at every stage of writing to make sure that what happened next uh, was a logical continuation of what had happened before. Um, but there were some issues that I indeed wanted to explore in the book. Yeah. And one of them was the unreliable nature of memory. And when you tell the same story from different perspectives, um, so at one stage in the novel, um, three of my characters, Hans, Mark and Claire, reassess what happened to them 20 years ago. And that I thought was a perfect opportunity for me to explore the same events from different perspectives. Yeah. And basically, um, I've realised that all of us remember the same event very differently in our own lives. Mm -hmm. So two people could experience the same thing and come away with completely different accounts and memories of what happened. So when I went back into past, like 20 years ago, I thought it was a perfect opportunity for me to explore the um, changeability of memory and how people remember the same things completely differently. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea. And <laughs> quite early on, and without giving anything away, um, Mark, who is a writer, 
as well. He's he's also the author of a book. He refers to the creative mania of writing, and it's something that we when we talk to lots of different authors and often they will touch upon going into a sort of crazed state where they're kind of just manically typing and then we'll come out of it and they've got 15,000 words. Um, I mean, that's a bit bit of exaggeration. So what does creative mania mean to you? Um, Well, I would um, go with what Mark calls it, you know, a phase of sustained writing um, where there's all sorts of adrenaline you know, rushes going on while you're actually creating something from scratch. In my case, it happens during the first draft um, because that's where, you know, you are creating something from nothing and it's extremely exciting to be in that phase. So I actually really like writing first drafts. It's my favourite part of the writing process um, because there is a certain um, element of the unknown in it. And chances are you only find out what it is by the end of the day, the end of each writing day. So for me, it's a voyage into the unknown, and that's what's really exciting. Um, So creative mania in the book, at least in my character's perspective, is a period where he would just write, and things would be going really, really well um, during that period. But he also is enjoying it at the same time. So I think like Mark, you know, uh, face of creative mania is something which I aspire to. It doesn't happen all the time. But when I'm in it, I'm really happy. Yeah. Oh, I think every author would love Lisa Ames to be in that state of just yeah, pure creativity. I like the idea the of thinking of the first draft like that. Because I think a lot of people maybe, I definitely did with my first book. I saw it as a bit of a slog because I, I, because I didn't know what I was doing. It felt like I was just getting it down. And I don't. And I'm really trying to change that with my new book, like just have a more positive attitude towards that fun process of figuring out what the story is, which is really fun, really. Like all the edits are so much more pernickety. So, yes, I do agree. Actually, I find editing to be um, a very different sort of um, mindset altogether. Um, And I wouldn't say it's as, you know, creatively exciting as the first draft, in my humble opinion. Um, It's more of a sort of. routine sort of um, process which you go you know because I did many editors on on my book yeah how many um, at least 14 drafts wow um, before I sent it out to agents Um, so for me it was a sort of structured process it didn't have that spark of the unknown which um, I was truly enjoying whilst writing the first draft yeah yeah cool I'm gonna adopt that attitude it's a good one so you've had an incredibly varied career Um, so you started out as a biochemist and then became a historian, and now you're an author. So, mm-hmm. um, so have you always wanted to write a book? Was that something that was always in the back of your mind while you were doing the other stuff? Um, yeah, and is, it, is that what you kind of, or did something inspire you to change tack and go for the author thing? Um, I have always wanted to write. Uh, my dream of becoming a writer began with bedtime stories, which my dad used to tell me when I was growing up in Kuala Lumpur. And when you read lots of delicious stories mm-hmm. as a child, I read a lot of Annie Blyton. Um, my dad said he started me on books at the age of two, so uh, by the age of six I had actually devoured most of any Blyton's books by then. Mm-hmm. Um, so you begin to wish that you could tell the same delicious stories yourself. So that was always at the back of my mind, to be a writer. Um, but there were also other, th- other things I really wanted <laughs> you know, to experience too. Um, so I, you know, I've subsequently realized that nothing's ever wasted um, as a writer. Everything you've experienced in the past becomes immensely useful when you're writing a novel. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually really glad now I've you know 
done a lot of things because I can draw on all these small details when constructing a story, and more often than not, small details um, are the ones which make a novel sing. Hopefully, make it memorable. Um, so, just to give you one example, I I went to a、uh, literary festival in York about three years back, and I actually did see a woman with lurid pink lipstick hitting a literary agent with a handbag. <laughs> so that's actually a true episode. It happened right in front of me, like two yards away, and I thought that's just fun. That's interesting. I I'm going to put that small tiny detail into yesterday just to live another story. Yeah. So when, when I read that detail, I did wonder. I wonder if that happened because it is so far fetched. It almost has to be true. I'm so glad to hear it actually happened. And specifics <laughs> like that are what makes a novel come alive.、Exactly. You're right. You're right. Like、yes. those kind of tiny details that you can just that you can see happening. It's like that's yeah. So so great. So so, do you think you'll be doing more stuff after being an author to add to that experience, or do you think this is kind of like what you want to stick with? Uh, I'm definitely a writer at heart, so nothing makes me happier than to write a story. But then I've realised there are other mediums of telling a story too, not just novels. So that's something I'm prepared to explore in the future. You know, maybe like writing scripts, for instance,、mm-hmm. is also a form of storytelling.、Um, so I'm not, you know, ruling out possibilities as、yeah. far as storytelling is concerned. There are other mediums out there which I may explore in the future. Cool! How exciting! <laughs> and in yesterday, obviously, the central theme is this this idea of sort of fact versus memory perspective versus you know what actually happened, and that seems to really be reflected in your sort of dual careers as a scientist, which is very fact based, very empirical, and as a historian, which is very subjective. And、um, have you always been interested in the contrast between the two? Oh,、things? absolutely.、Um, Because I went from、um, working with radioactive cells in a lab in Heidelberg, which also features in Yesterday, <laughs> um, to um, dissertation in history at Cambridge,、um, and it really struck me how you know different the two worlds are: the world of science, the world of um, creative um, writing, also the world of academia,、um, and going through all these different orbits, you actually.、Um, Begin to realize、um, that people are driven by very different things in the respective orbits they move in, and I'm always interested by the question: what drives people? What keeps them motivated? What makes them wake up in the morning?、Um, and that actually has informed the writing of yesterday.、Uh, and going back to what you said earlier about facts、um, and what aren't facts, actually,、um, it struck me. Um, while I was doing research in history,、um, that people remember the same thing fifty years ago、um, in a very different way、um, because their memories change over time.、Um, so I interviewed lots of prisoners of the Japanese, and I was actually really struck by how some of their own memories of what happened to them during the war actually became supplanted by things which have happened. Um, in the last fifty or sixty years,、uh, and this includes films they had watched about the Second World War, actually replacing their own memories of what they had experienced themselves. So I realized at that stage that fact is a very nebulous term.、Mm-hmm. It's basically what you choose to tell you, yourself, really. You know what you choose to believe. So I was actually able to draw on that and put that into yesterday when I was writing it. Was that what your dissertation was on then? Yes. What an interesting topic. Yes, I. Um, spoke to lots of people who had been captured by the Japanese during the war. Yeah.、Uh, 
um, and most of them were in their 80s, 90s when I interviewed them. Um, and it really struck me just how you know um, changeable memory is. Did you have did you have accounts of what what they'd kind of been through, like the official accounts of what they'd been through, and then you spoke to them about their memories? So you exactly. could okay, interesting. Wow. Yes, and I also what read topic. lots of war diaries, and more often than not, these diaries tend to focus on very similar events, like say the moment of liberation. Everyone just writes about liberation, but they all take different perspectives on that particular episode. And when you actually speak to people in person, you get yet another, you know, set of perspectives, um, perspectives which had been changed by time. Because war diaries are immediate; people writing them down, you know, yeah. um, in in September nineteen forty-five, say. Um, but when you speak to someone who remembers liberation sixty years later, it's a very different story. Mm-hmm. So uh, it really struck me how memories. And you can you can really see how that kind yeah. of that idea then formed your book that's, that's, and like you say like everything everything happens for a reason and every idea comes from something I love that Aww. idea that's so great and do you think that what people choose to write down in a diary which is you know essentially private and what people choose to say to other people do you think there's a discrepancy there as well oh absolutely I do think um, diaries are quite self-reflective most of the time people write them to make sense of what has happened to them and also mem- diaries do serve as memory aids um, so people do write diaries just because they want to remember things which matter to them. And more often than not, I think they want to remember things which make them feel. So memory is tied to emotion. So if you remember something particularly well, chances are it's associated with a very strong emotion, um, like fear or great joy or happiness. That's why you remember these episodes. Um, so yeah, I think it's genuinely tied to you know something deeper inside something that triggers deep within the hearts yeah. i just have to ask what were you doing with the radioactive cells are you, even, are you allowed to tell us <laughs> yeah. if you're not allowed if it's a top secret project don't worry but i have to ask um these cells um i do believe are still thriving in heidelberg um i think i've meddled with them quite a bit um <laughs> during my time there <laughs> Okay, we'll do say that. no more. <laughs> yeah, they're cell cultures. So uh, once you have them going, they just keep propagating. Um, so you keep them in a giant um, sort of um, machine um, with liquid nitrogen. So you can just basically keep them going forever. So I do believe the cells I worked on back in 2002 are still kicking around right now. Oh, wow. What you, and it's just seeing what the radioactive... The, the, how the radioactive elements influence those cells. That's um, what's you use these elements to um, monitor how they grow. Okay. That's what I did at least. Wow. But it's a set, standard set of cultures. Okay. So you can just keep them going as long as you make sure they divide and multiply. Oh my god, I wonder what's happening. No one <laughs> quick, go to Heidelberg. Quick to, <laughs> I was going to say quick to Heidelberg. Let's find <laughs> out. Different, different approaches. Yeah. Like um, so you obviously went to the Faber Academy. Indeed, yes. um, Which has produced a, you know, a complete who's who of successful authors. We had Ali Land join us on the mm-hmm. podcast and coming to our who came to our event last month and Lydia Ruffles will be joining you in September indeed um, which is brilliant so um can you please tell us a little bit about your experience like and um yeah what you kind of took away from the course and you know. um, I can safely say I would not have written yesterday if not for the structure and support provided by the academy and what I found really useful was right from the start right from the first 5,000 words of yesterday I had feedback from my lovely classmates on the course. So we spent an hour each week discussing um, each student's work in turn. Um, and I took away so much from that first discussion 
the first 5,000 words of yesterday, it really shaped me. Um, it taught me a few things. Um, firstly, um, how to have a thick skin, you know, how to deal <laughs> with criticism in, you know, um, in sort of a public setting, really. Um, and secondly, it helped me realize that criticism is particularly valuable when it converges. Um, so if two people point out the same thing, mm-hmm. chances are it's really not working if you've got to fix it fast. Um, so that's what I really got uh, valuable, you know, in terms of valuable input yeah. on my uh, on my novel. It's been massive. So did you did you go did you go into? I know you have to obviously write something that then helps you get onto the course. So had you ri- had you written five thousand words of yesterday, which then helped you to get on the course? So you turned up with that part of your book. Is that um, kind of actually, words? I wrote most of the first five thousand um, words um, when I actually had you know got on the course. Um, so the course started, I think, in January. Um, 2015 and I had to submit something by March or April for the first time so that actually provided the perfect incentive to get the first 5,000 words of the book sorted Um, the other thing which has been immensely useful for me uh, was that my little writing group um, which consists of um, all my classmates from the course we still meet every week and it's like two years later in Bloomsbury and we exchange about 9,000 words in total between ourselves every week we try to meet and that just keeps me going um, today um, like a lovely bunch of friends you know, cheering you on every week that's so I great think that's totally amazing that's what I mean that's the reason why we started the riffraff because both when Rosie and I were writing our novels we were apart from knowing each other which, which we didn't at the time uh, when I was writing mine I didn't we didn't know each other yeah. I mean god I mean I can't imagine that but um and it is an incredibly lonely business unless you've got someone you know both critiquing and championing you you are just alone in your house thinking I don't even know if what I'm doing is worthwhile Mm -hmm. it's really tough oh absolutely I think having a writing group is really critical Um, as part of a writer's development it has helped me tremendously and I don't think I'd be the writer I am today if not for my lovely group Uh, I call call them Bloomsbury Five (laughs) (laughs) meeting in Bloomsbury every week well let us know who they are so they can come on the podcast and come to the event (laughs) it must be nice to be able to work with a group like that and also to know that everyone's kind of can write and has you know so it's it's not like going to and that sounds really bad because people have to learn to write as well but you know it's nice to have those sort of that kind of quality control as well so people's opinions that you trust because you've spent the whole course with them so would you exactly. would you say that it's worth the money? Because I know I I mean I, it's, it's like four thousand pounds. Indeed, it? but it, is, it sounds like you think it's worth the money. Oh, uh, certainly in my case I do. But I'm also aware that some people may not be able to afford a writing course, uh, which costs you know that much. Um, that's why I'm offering scholarship at Curtis Brown Creative. Yeah, uh, and it's basically for people who come from less privileged background like myself, um, and who can't afford to pay the course fee. Um, I really think that you know people you know should be given an opportunity um, to do you know creative writing even though they can't afford it. So that's why you know I'm I'm trying to help someone um, who who you know um, is very keen um, to write but doesn't have the financial ability to do it. Um, so the scholarship hopefully will be available from uh, January 2018 on both uh, one of their in London courses as well as online so people abroad can also apply for it um, if you know they can't come to London they can still do you know the online course and the scholarship will 
basically fund them. Brilliant. That's so great. That's so great. We're all about authors giving back, aren't we? Yeah, that's so great. Um, as oh, we mentioned, I just one more oh, thing about Faber <laughs> Academy. Oh, sure. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Just really wanted to get this one in. How was it pitching, like reading your work to a room full of agents? Was that terrifying? Um, I was in debt, Scott, no? to be perfectly honest. That's great. I, I've been like a lecturer in the past, so I'm used to speaking to um, large audiences, not two or three hundred people. Yeah. So, you know, there was only about like, 30, 40 people in the room. So in terms of numbers, yeah. it wasn't that many people. Yeah. Um, and actually, when you're reading something you've written and feel passionate about, it's actually a really wonderful experience. Yeah. Um, what was excruciating for me was I was the last person to go. Oh, God. <laughs> so I had to wait for my turn after like 30 people or something like that. Oh, wow. So that was, you know, quite nerve-wracking for me to go last. Yeah, yeah, because it would be nice to get it out of the way and then just enjoy hearing everyone else read Indeed. rather than being yeah. last. Oh, poor the short straw. <laughs> oh, well, it all worked out well for you. <laughs> and, and we touched upon it briefly earlier that yesterday does look at our reliance on technology and how reliant we are on technology to document our lives. Are you addicted to your iPhone? The, the short, honest answer is yes, I am. Hooray! I think, I think everyone will be like, oh, phew, God, me too. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, I'm, I find myself being really reliant on it. It's just like getting here today. You know, having Google Maps, if I didn't have that, you know, I wouldn't be able to find my way here. Um, so I'm aware that our dependence on technology is increasing because I'm experiencing it myself. Um, and actually, yesterday is intended to hold up a mirror to our own increasing dependence on technology as a medium of remembering, as a prompt to remembering. And I read somewhere recently that it's actually paradoxically affecting our memories. So all these you know, um, sort of Wikipedia searches, um, having smartphones, you know, on, you know, on our, you know, handbags, you know, easy access. Um, it's actually affecting our own ability to remember, which is quite a scary thing when you think about it. Of course, because yeah. you, you, you know that you can, yeah, you don't need to remember. Mm -hmm. You can just, you can look at, you can look something up in exactly. a second. You don't, yeah. so you don't need to. Wow, that's, that's really sad. It's, it's quite terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. But then, you know, you look at things like Google Maps, that's really helping, you, you know, people's lives. And but, then, and... but then when I think, I still would say I like to have my bearings. <laughs> and I think my granddad like, used to say that. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. I like to know where I am. But like, I think a lot of people um, who maybe have always grown up with that kind of technology on their phone, that's going to be what guides them somewhere. So they're not going to have any kind of idea of the geography of the place because they're going to be, I do sound like your granddad. <laughs> he was a but, great chap. So. <laughs> but yeah, it does. Well, anyway, let's move on from that. Um, Amy the nerd. Um, so you touched on it a little bit earlier with um, having a set writing routine based on what you um what you're doing depending on each country which i love but um do it when you're kind of just you know going about your day-to-day -day, do you have a set writing or writing routine uh no not at no? all um i discovered at some point that i write really well on the move so places which work for me are trains planes even buses so whenever you know i would go on a long haul plane journey i know that's writing time for me um and if um even if I'm on a bus, you know, I could even make a stab at it. Um, so I have no set um, structure for my writing day. It just basically comes um, when I'm on the move and I know that, you know, I'm in the groove, as it were. 
and you know, I just fish my laptop up and just start writing. Yeah. On the move, in the groove. That could, that could get quite expensive if you just had to take loads of train journeys. <laughs> and I must write today, so I'll just get on the train. Also, another plane journey. Oh, here we go. Damn it. Um, I'm a tube writer as well. I'm a oh, fellow tube writer. You're not a Gemini, are you? No, I'm a Scorpio. But I am a fellow tube writer. There's nothing like the pressure of having to get off the tube in 15 minutes to get 500 words down. And they're always really good because you're just you're not even thinking you have to do it. I highly recommend getting on the tube. So if, if the circle line is still ran, that's what I would. That would be my advice for every author: buy an all-day travel ticket. <laughs> Plus other better advice than that. Um, talking of advice, what would you pass on to people who are aspiring to write a book? Um, well, I would start with um, apply the same amount of creativity to the submission process as you would to the writing of your book. Um, so in my case, I just I realized that writing is just a small part of the bigger picture of being an author. Um, so for me, the I took the submission process really seriously. I actually kept a giant Excel file, um, which I used to keep track of all the agents who had contacted me about the novel, um, basically all the intelligence I had gleaned about the industry all went into a giant Excel file um, and I was aware that it also helped for people to put a face um, to a submission so your chances will improve if you actually met the person before it could be an agent or it, it could even be an editor um, so I was really fully aware that I also had to get my submission package right um, I was so terrified to send my work out. I actually um, didn't dare send it. So I actually checked into a hotel near London City Airport to write. to sort out the final, final draft before I sent it out to agents. So I spent five days in that hotel. And at noon, um, I had to get out of my room because that was checkout time. And I remember sitting in that lobby um, until five o'clock, being too terrified to send my work out because I really wanted to get it right. And I knew that I only had one go really you have one chance with each agent and I didn't want to lose that mm. chance um, so I, I would say that um, I took both the writing of the book and the submission of it you know um, equally importantly uh, and I'm glad I did so that's one piece of advice I would say you know be just as creative as you know you are submitting as you did with the writing of it and you, you mentioned your submission package for anybody who's halfway through their first manuscript who's starting to think about submitting to an agent could you tell us a little bit more about what that included yes so I had a cover letter explaining what the book is about and I kept it really short um, I had the first three chapters and I really worked so hard on them until I got a stage where I wouldn't change a word at, at least at that stage um, and uh, a synopsis which I kept really short to like about 400 words um, and what I realized was really important for me was the ability to distill my story into one sentence, a sort of killer pitch sentence. Um, so I had my, even right from the start of this book, you know, how do you solve a murder when you only remember yesterday? Um, and that I thought was, you know, very important for me, uh, at least in crafting that cover letter, saying that, you know, in the first sentence, this is what the book is about. And I was able to summarize it in one sentence. Um, so I would say that's quite important too, um, to be thinking about what your book is about as you're writing it and always going back to that killer pitch for your book and um, 
keeping that at the forefront of your mind even while you're still working on the first trial. That's great advice. Really great really advice. advice. Yeah. Um, so you did touch upon it earlier as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the prequel that you're writing? Um, or what can you tell us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, because uh, I'm, you know, um, so attached to my detective Hans Richardson, I decided to bring him back, or sit forward, uh, for the prequel. Uh, so he's solving a different case um, that involves the disappearance of a girl he loves um, before he loses his short-term memory at age of 18. So it's his first major case. Um, and really, I want to tell another another story, uh, which is a love story at its core. So yesterday, I feel it's a trailer with a heart. At least that's what I set out to do. So with today, the prequel I'm currently writing, I also want it to be a trailer with a heart. I, I love Hans as a character. I think I think Cute. he's quite fit. Is that okay to say that? <laughs> I'd have the proof of him being quite fit. Yeah, yeah proof too. He's quite fit <laughs> in my head. Anyway, I just I like male authority figures. So that's a whole other podcast. Oh, we don't have time for now. So when when can we expect that one? When's that one bit coming out? Uh, well, I had um, the good fortune to meet uh, Tracy Chevalier at uh, London Book oh. Fair 2016. So that was more than a year ago. And she told me um, to basically start writing the next book as soon as you can before the whole publicity thing kicks in with yesterday. So I took her advice really seriously. So I got started last summer. Oh, wow. As soon as I had the idea for today, I started writing literally the next day. Um, so I am almost um, towards the end of the first draft. So with luck, I should have something, you know, ready for submission in about a few months from now. Oh, we can't so. wait to read it. I'm so can't excited. Wait. And we can't wait to hear you read from it. Thank you so much for coming along. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.